Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The grimy back streets in Elephant and Castle in South London during the Victorian times were definitely not a desirable place to be. The packed slums, workhouses and transient nature of the area meant that at times the residents would find themselves competing for resources, often turning to crime in order to make ends meet. Even though the area was destitute in some parts, it didn't mean that all the locals were poor. Some were ridiculously affluent and alongside wealth comes opportunity for the less fortunate, but not by legal means. Much like sparrows seek out humans to steal their fallen crumbs, one particular gang began to see the potential in blending in with a non-threatening presence, being able to carry out deeds no one would expect of them, building a criminal empire right under the noses of those who would never suspect them, and doing it so successfully that it lasted for over 80 years. Today on Macabre London, we uncover the story of the 40 Elephant Gang. women didn't have agency over their lives that some of us are fortunate enough to have today. For most Victorian women, they had just one path in life that they were meant to follow, get married and have children. Women were expected to have only interests and skills in things that would be advantageous in securing a husband. Young girls who were privileged enough to receive education were taught to sew, clean and keep a house in order for them to be useful to the men they were set to marry, and superfluous hobbies were kept to a minimum as they were not functional, and a woman who had hobbies was potentially a threat to the paternal home, as she would be more interested in pursuing those activities than keeping her family happy, which was definitely considered 
undesirable. Due to the moral pressure placed on women during the 1800s, an increase in suicides occurred as a result of illegitimate pregnancies from infidelity, and equally as a way to escape abusive relationships as there was little in the way of protection and hardly any support for women who were subjected to domestic violence. After several female bodies were fished out of the Thames, the papers played their part in perpetuating the notion that women were killing themselves as a result of their failed relationships with men, and as such this only helped to exacerbate the situation, resulting in more women feeling like they had nothing to offer other than their role in a man's life, diminishing their existence entirely in a society that effectively didn't value them for any other reason than their definition as a wife or a mother. All the while, men did as they pleased, committed infidelity with no recourse, had control over their own money and property, which included the body of their wife, making it perfectly legal for them to force them to work and bear their children, and could divorce them at the drop of a hat and keep all of the property, without any legal recourse being allowed from their wife. No wonder women turned to gin. Despite women having very few rights, such as being allowed to vote, own property, divorce without extremely convoluted twisted rules, which only apply to them and not their husbands, or have any legal right to sue, as part of the workforce they were becoming a very important cog in the machine. As more women began obtaining jobs as a result of the Industrial Revolution, stepping away from their previous limited job roles of housekeepers, maids and schoolteachers, they began pressing forward with obtaining a modicum of equality with their male counterparts, as they were deemed to be more valuable and as such had more bargaining powers. Toward the end of the Victorian era, women were rallying against their oppressors and refusing to fit the angel of the home stereotype that was expected of them. The suffrage movement was gaining momentum and the term feminist was coined, raising the profile of the lack of women's rights afforded to even women in privileged positions, let alone the working classes. Despite Queen Victoria herself denouncing feminism, she was well aware of the impact she had as a ruling monarch on the rights of women, and as such, her merely being on the throne in a position of power gave weight to the plight. The rise in the widespread acknowledgement of the tide of inequalities women were facing were inadvertently causing waves in the lower classes. Women who had been trained to cook, clean, sew and organise a household were turning these skills into a way to make money by nefarious means. After all, if they could earn a living and wages which didn't have to go through the man of the house or their paternal guardian, then they could create their own financial freedom. With many women now working alongside each other in factories and other physical labour jobs, they began talking. Many of the women had husbands, partners and brothers, who, on the side of their regular day jobs, would turn to criminal activity at night time to make ends meet. And as some women were expected to work for free, particularly those that were apprentices, they had no other option than to commit crime to make an income. After all, in the poorer areas of London, rent was so high that it regularly consumed 50% of people's wages, leaving them little left to survive upon for the rest of the month, a trend which sadly still hasn't left London, meaning that many worked long and arduous hours at dangerous jobs just to hand over their money to someone else. For men, 
The main way to obtain an extra income was to rob others, pick pockets, or to roam in gangs after dark in more affluent areas, waiting to ambush unsuspecting passers-by. For women, using violence was sometimes an option, but for many, they would commit crimes using deception. Gangs began forming all across London and started honing their crimes. Instead of carrying out just the usual beat-em-up robberies, they executed well-thought-out scams, heists and extortions. In these organised boroughs, gangs of men would form protection rackets, sell stolen goods and band together to extort money from wealthy business owners. And with many more people involved, the perpetrators were harder to catch. With the police force relatively newly established and with officers also regularly being poorly paid, they were easily bribed and as such, the gangs began to blossom into something which became an elite operation. Two gangs that operated seamlessly alongside each other were the Elephant and Castle Gang, a group of a large number of men from that area, and also the all-female gang, the 40 Elephants. As territories were fiercely protected, gangs gave themselves names which were associated with their respective areas, in order that people knew exactly where they were from and where to be wary of. The gang name also sometimes deviated to the 40 Thieves, as per the folktale of Ali Baba and his 40 Thieves. But equally, the pantomime of the same name had a run in Elephant Castle in 1898, so it could have well been pilfered from the marquees outside the theatre which would have advertised the show. Even though the name may have been changeable, one thing was for certain. The Angels of the Home were now falling into crime and becoming definitely less saintly. An iteration of the 40 Elephants started in the late 1700s and as such, the years of experience was being handed down through the generations and come the late 1800s, the gang were really starting to kick into gear, working like a well-oiled machine. In order for any organised crime ring to operate well, there has to be a head of the gang who calls the shots. The first known top-ranking kingpin, or should that be queenpin, was Mary Carr, a working-class girl who was an adept criminal. Mary, who also tempt as an artist's model, was an excellent shoplifter and was known as the queen thief of the 40 elephants. Mary ruled the gang for a few years up until March 1896, when at the age of 25 she was imprisoned for stealing a boy from his mother. At this time, it wasn't uncommon for young boys to be used by older criminal gangs to carry out some of the smaller thieving tasks in return for temporary bed and board, a welcoming prospect which would provide respite from sleeping in gutters or packed together inside empty barrels, a practice which homeless children were often forced to do as there was nowhere else for them to go, and unfortunately, many of them died from exposure in the process. Mary protested her innocence and said that she was just asked to look after the boy by his drunk mother, who had never returned for him. But the mother disagreed, and as a result, Mary found herself sentenced to three years' hard labour, and as such, her time as the Queen was facing a hiatus. The gang continued to rumble on during Mary's imprisonment, and was still successful, but it wasn't until 16 years later, and after Mary's abdication, that it would really hit its stride, 
when a new queen thief rose to the throne. With the rise of commercialism as a result of the Industrial Revolution, shops were now becoming stocked with items which were less functional and more expensive. Luckily for those looking to pocket goods, the items were more readily on display and easy to get a five-finger discount upon, and with shops now displaying items in windows, these worked like an advertisement of exactly what could be stolen. The all-male Elephant and Castle gang had begun carrying out smash-and-grab heists on shops and jewellers, making off with considerable amounts of items which would turn a reasonable profit when resold. However, with this forceful technique, there was no way of doing it quietly, and as such, every robbery would result in the police being summoned and the perpetrators having to be nimble on their feet so as to not get caught. The 40 elephants saw the attention these smash-and-grab heists garnered, and they wanted in on the loot, but they knew they could be far more stealthy in their approach. With the first purpose-built department store being opened in London in 1877, these huge stores caught on and spread across the West End, lining Regent Street and Oxford Street, and each borough had at least one of these grandiose parlours of regulated extravagance on its high street. Department stores were created and marketed specifically for women. The expectations placed upon middle-class ladies were to be constantly suitably dressed for the many social gatherings they would have to attend, meaning that many different outfits were required to make sure they didn't make a fashion faux pas. In order to make sure women spent their money, these shops were designed to be easy to navigate, open plan and clearly laid out, with compartmentalised divisions between areas. This made the shopping experience incredibly enjoyable and made it a desirable activity for women to carry out, and it was finally something which was theirs alone to do. The rise of the department store, however, did have a negative effect on women. Despite the social anxieties that were created to keep up with the now faster changing fashions of the day, the larger stores could sell items at a much cheaper rate, which put many independent seamstresses out of business. This led to very talented women having to take jobs in the very stores that had stolen their livelihoods. The working conditions in the department stores were terrible. Women were made to work incredibly long shifts, often starting at 7am when the stores would open, working through till 11pm when they closed. Many stores had strict rules for their staff and would dock their pay if they didn't adhere to them. Seats were not permitted for the workers, and they were forced to stand for 16 hours a day. But there were many lounging areas for the customers, as stores wanted to increase the amount of time women spent inside them. Some stores were even built with bedrooms above them, meaning staff lived in the shop, and the premises were often not heated, poorly maintained, and they literally had nothing else to do, working for six out of seven days a week. This obviously started to breed contempt within the shop girls who would help themselves to items to sell on in the hope that they could earn some extra cash. With the stores now being far larger conglomerates, the sense of stealing from a direct victim was removed, and with it, so was the sense of guilt. With the invention of these much vaster stores, it also became easier for customers to cop themselves a few unsolicited freebies, if they so pleased, and this is where the 40 elephants began planning how to solicit goods from these corporations. 
The 40 elephants were highly skilled when it came to turning any situation into an opportunity, and as such, worked on using the Victorian perceptions about women to their advantage. They used the restrictive clothing they were expected to wear to create a new way of stealing. Most working-class women would wear dresses which were flat-fronted and had little flair to them, but middle-class women had far puffier dresses which had bustles, puff sleeves and many accessories, such as hats, stoles and mink fur muffs, a type of hand warmer which made it incredibly easy to sequester items inside it. With it being deemed highly improbable that women would ever dream of committing crimes, they were always given the benefit of the doubt and regularly left to browse unassisted in shops, making it very easy to pilfer without getting caught. The elephants went to work creating dresses, hats and robes which had hidden pockets sewn inside them so they could easily stuff good quality items into their clothing without anyone suspecting a thing. They also used bags sewn into skirts which hung between the legs which could accommodate many items. When one of the gang tried to escape a department store she was noticed to be waddling and as such apprehended whereupon police revealed 40 items stuffed into the bag in her skirt. Another method of deception was to have a false arm, so it looked like the ladies were just quietly browsing, whilst they were busy grabbing things from the shelves behind them. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. In a time before the handbag was popular and pockets were just not something women had as they never carried their own money, instead charging items back to their husbands' accounts or setting up invoices to be paid at a later date, the crime was a perfect one and incredibly easy to get away with. If anyone approached the gang to confront them, they would act incredulous at the behaviour of the staff, who would then become embarrassed and leave them alone so they could walk free without recourse. The elephants weren't so bold as to ever wear the items they stole. They instead would sell them out of town or pass them through several people to pawn them on their behalf, allowing them to keep some of the money, but they would receive the lion's share. They also used the newly created public transport network to easily distribute their wares around town and to also be used as an easy means to escape. With a tube line leading right into the heart of Elephant and Castle, 
the girls could raid a department store in the West End and be home within the hour, counting up their newly acquired goods. With the gang now operating a systematic thieving ring, they looked to their newly appointed queen to cast the net wider and to bring in more girls into the fold. Alice Diamond was a girl who had risen through the ranks of the 40 elephants, and in 1915 she took the place as the Queen Thief after Mary Carr abdicated. Born in Lambeth Workhouse to parents who were no strangers to crime, her father having been convicted of punching the Lord Mayor's son through a plate glass window, Alice, who also went by the name Annie, was always set to have an unconventional life. She began stealing as part of the gang, wound up with a few minor convictions for theft, one in particular when she was caught stealing chocolate in 1912, but she was always pretty wily and good at evading capture, knowing the local streets like the back of her hand, and having many places to hide out. The eldest of seven children, Annie was gifted with good looks, and at an impressive five foot eight, she towered above most men, making her quite striking. This allowed Annie to use this to her advantage, and as she was deemed to be physically intimidating, she was a good choice for becoming the figurehead of the gang. Pretty enough to be charming and distracting to her male counterparts, but tall enough that you wouldn't want to mess with her. Annie proceeded to keep things in the family and looked after her own, with her sister Louisa joining the 40s, and her brother joining the closely linked but all-male Elephant and Castle gang. With the gang growing in numbers, with over 70 known members, but more than likely many more spilling out across the West End, the grip they held on London was enormous. Their tactics for quietly and discreetly raiding stores was now becoming an elite operation. Many girls would dress up in their finery that they'd bought with the proceeds of their other looting trips and band together to take a store each. By taking several department stores at the same time, they knew the stretch police force would not be able to catch all of them as they scattered back into the back streets of West London. Quite handily, a few department stores, such as the famous Harrods in Knightsbridge, had a tube stop right outside its doors, making it the perfect and fast getaway for the gang and their goods. In order to overwhelm the staff inside the store, that's if they didn't already know the shop girls working who would be in on the scheme, they would appoint a few girls to ask many questions of the assistant, which would lead them away from the area they wanted to steal from. The girls would practice putting on the posh with each other, so they knew that by the time they got to the store, they had no chance of being detected. Once the store assistant was safely out of the way, the gang would systematically strip the store of its most valuable items, which would readily be available to get their hands on and pocket them in the specially made clothing before simply saying goodbye and leaving, or if anyone raised suspicion, they would hitch up their skirts and run. They knew there was the chance that they could be caught, and if this did happen, the gang kept a pot of money, which allowed for bail payments. After all, if the gang could get one of their sisters out of the prison, allowing them to not face a sentence, they could get back on the rob pretty quickly and continue to earn money. The profits from the goods were pooled and then distributed amongst the girls. This was fairly democratic, and even though some members would have received more than the lion's share, they did keep funds behind to look after the girls. With their successes soon preceding them, 
they began to be easily recognised in London, and the department stores were soon spotting them as soon as they started to gather outside, prepping for the raid, making it very difficult for them to continue their practices. As supplements to their regular shoplifting, the gang started scams, which were quick and effective, resulting in a reasonable amount of items or money being sequestered from unsuspecting victims. One such scam was to secure a maid's job at a rich household and secure false references so the girl would be trusted to be on her own in the house. Once the house owners had then gone to work or away on a trip, they would then call in the gang and strip the house of its goods. Another scam was to entrap wealthy men, encouraging them to leave behind evidence of their cheating ways, such as taking clothing, love letters and other traceable trinkets, then blackmailing them for their wanton acts. This proved very useful when the girls found themselves arrested and not able to receive bail, as they had a habit of doing this to judges and other officials. The look on the men's faces when they walked into court to face trial must have been a picture. Understandably, the women often got off scot-free. With the bigger stealing opportunities becoming too risky in London, the gang began to think about what they could do next. Not being ones to get stuck in a rut, Annie, the Queen, and her second-in-command, Maggie Hill, decided to come up with a new plan of theft. Maggie, who was considered the most violent and unhinged member of the gang, had been trialling a new opportunistic way of stealing, which she thought might catch on. Walking up to a jeweller's shop, she went inside, and when none of the staff recognised her, she asked to see a diamond ring. The shop clerk diligently obliged, placing the tray of rings on the countertop for her to peruse. As soon as the tray hit the countertop, she snatched it and ran, but unfortunately, as she was making her getaway, she ran headfirst into a policeman who arrested her and she ended up with a short stay in prison. Whilst this was indeed an incredibly profitable way to do things, it did have a much higher chance of getting caught, and with Maggie having been detained, Annie had to come up with a much more subtle way of doing things. Both Annie and Maggie were known for being quite intimidating, and with two newly acquired diamond rings attached to her fingers, Annie was said to give an incredibly strong left hook. Knowing they could handle themselves, as could a lot of the girls in the gang, the crimes started to become tinged with more violence, and the reputation of the gang as untouchable began to grow. With the backup of the male gangs of London, they were now incredibly fearsome, and whilst they didn't actively seek to murder people, they were known for carrying straight razors upon their person, and they weren't afraid to use them. Anyone who was disloyal to the gang would be subject to a beating, and it wasn't an uncommon occurrence for the girls to fiercely protect their patch, subjecting any trespassers on their turf who thought they could steal from their shops a meeting with a metal bar. If the less skilled thieves started to work on their patch, and as such got caught, the gang could be subjected to stricter security measures at stores, which was something they weren't wanting to incur. As another method of protecting the gang, Annie made sure that the girls only had relationships with pre-vetted suitors, and no members were allowed relationships with people who weren't in the criminal underworld, or at least in some way affiliated with it, in fears that the gang could easily be sold out to the police. 
This also meant that the gang could use the men to their advantage and pull them in for tasks that they were apparently more well-suited to than the female members, such as driving getaway vehicles. Annie thought about how they could use the latest modern advancement of the motor car to their advantage. Drawing out a highly detailed plan, they worked out where many wealthy households were situated on the outskirts of London and beyond, and would proceed to prowl the country, carrying out burglaries on the country's hottest properties. With the girls trying out the technique of getaway vehicles on a few department stores beforehand, they rocked up in limousines, usually driven by a member of the Elephant and Castle gang, waltzed into the store, stole enough items, and then made a dash for it, getting away easily and with no police able to catch them. With the First World War having now happened, the demand for summer items had skyrocketed due to their scarceness. Silk fabric and fur coats were two of these items, which could easily be thrown into the boot of a car to be moved around the country and sold elsewhere. Even though cars had number plates, they were easily changed or removed and replaced later, making it very easy to make a getaway without being traced. The gang started combining their shoplifting with the rural robberies, and to avoid detection, began changing their appearance. During the 1920s, the rise of the Bright Young Things, a group of socialites known for their partying lifestyle, became the fashion of the day, and the girls copied their looks. They cut their hair short and wore silk flapper dresses and feather headbands, making them easily identifiable from their outrageous looks. This worked in their favour, as if they then changed back into drab attire, they'd easily be able to walk through a crowd and no one would know who they were. One of the gang, Lillian Rose Kendall, was known to be an excellent driver, and as such, she was allowed to become a getaway driver for her partner in the Elephant and Castle gang, returning the favour for the many getaways the boys had done for the 40s. Lillian became the poster girl for the gang due to her stunning good looks, and earned the name the Eaton Cropped Girl due to her fashionable haircut. The members of the gang that didn't have access to cars weren't ruled out of the home heists. Instead, they just had to be a little more savvy in the acquisition and movement of their stolen goods. The gang would buy large trunks and suitcases and send them to the destination they were looking to rob. This meant that the cars would be free of empty suitcases should they get stopped by the police on their way to a destination. These cases were then collected from the station, filled with goodies, and returned, along with a few very smartly dressed girls to keep an eye on them, whilst the cars were driven back home with no stolen goods inside them. When the money that was rolling in became too much for the gang to spend reasonably without getting caught, they started to throw lavish parties, which the whole gang and their subsequent partners from the Elephant and Castle gang would attend. These parties were a good use of the money and allowed the gangs to let off steam. Many of the women by this time were so successful within the crime ring that they were now the working women of the household, with their husbands and partners who had decided they'd let the women go to work whilst they did nothing or got heavily stuck into drinking and drugs. Unfortunately, the rule that Annie had imposed upon the gang of only courting those that had the same interests almost blew the gang apart in 1925. As a result of one of the gang's love interests not being in keeping with the gang's beliefs, a fight had broken out in a pub in Lambeth over the Union, which included another gang member. As a result of the violent skirmish, a few days later, Annie and a few members of the gang 
enforce their power, asserting their displeasure at the alliance by raiding their home, smashing windows with bottles, and attacking the whole family, including a 15-year-old boy with a knife, leaving all of the occupants with bad injuries and scars to remind them to never cross the gang again, threatening them with a gun before they departed. This saw Annie and the others implicated in the crime incarcerated, but the small fact of being in prison didn't stop Annie from ruling the gang. She continued directing the movements of the girls from behind bars, and making sure her head girl, and by this time top thief Lillian, the Eaton Crop girl, was doing an excellent job of looking after things in her absence. However, once out of prison, Annie decided to fully relinquish control of the elephants, handing her crown to Lillian, who would continue in her place. Annie didn't go straight as such, but she did decide that being a madam at a brothel was a far calmer pace of life than continuing the fast-paced activities of the elephants. The gang continued its activities up to the 1950s, but with the increase in security methods and with enhanced ways of tracking down criminals, the heyday of the gang was over, and it slowly disbanded. The acts of the 40 elephants may have been revolutionary for their time, but the art of shoplifting wasn't just reserved for the working classes. In fact, with the rise of the department store, many affluent middle and upper class women were stealing just for the hell of it. Whilst the working class elephants would have been put behind bars for their crimes, the upper class ladies would have been told that they had kleptomania, a mental disorder which caused them to steal, meaning they would most likely not have to face court, a privilege which the working classes were not privy to. Even without gangs, many women had no other option than to commit crimes as a way to survive, whether that be skimming from their employer, picking pockets or selling their bodies. The inequalities women faced drove them to survive by any means necessary, making the working-class female Victorian criminal a common occurrence. The invention of the department store, magazines and the increased need to be modern and in fashion only did more to exacerbate this situation, controlling the minds of many girls, who were expected to be nothing more than shopping machines, turning to stealing just in order to have some agency over their own existence, or in order to keep up with the pressures of society. Today, the legacy of the 40 thieves lives on, not due to the crimes they committed, but the attitude they created in taking the inequalities and inadequacies life can throw at you and turning them to your advantage. In turn, these women may have been on the wrong side of the law, but they were always on the right side of reclaiming their own destiny and forging their own paths in life. A thoroughly modern attitude for an incredibly repressed time. Thank you for joining me for that episode of Macabre London. It's nice to be back after the Christmas break. Just wanted to let you know about what's going to be happening with the show this year so you're up to date and you know what to expect. So from now on, you'll receive a full-length episode of Macabre London once a month and every fortnight you'll receive a Macabre mini mystery. So that's two episodes a month alternating between the two types of shows. I know lots of you really like the Macabre mini mystery that I did before Christmas, so I figured this would be a good way of alternating between the two and giving you a little bit more content. 
In other news, just wanted to say thank you to everyone that helped to get the YouTube channel to a thousand subscribers. We didn't make it before the end of 2020, but we're so very nearly there now. Just a few left to go. So if you're not subscribed on YouTube and you're listening to the podcast, then why not pop over there? The episodes have plenty of pictures and visual things to set the scene. And you also get to see what I look like. And also this cat. I'll leave the link to the channel at the top of the show notes so that it's easy for you to do. As always, a huge thanks goes to our patrons, particularly the two executive producers, Sam and Barry, and all of our other patrons. If you want to have your name read out at the end of the show, as well as access to lots of other goodies and behind-the-scenes things, then Patreon starts from as little as $1 a month and goes up in increments from there. If you'd like to support the show with a one-off donation, then you can do that in a number of various ways, and I'll leave the links to all of those in the show notes, and also the link to the Amazon wishlist should you want to help with research items such as books for the show. As always, if you want to see what I'm up to in between episodes, then please follow my social media and come and say hi. It's always nice to hear from you. Thank you for joining me for another macabre tale from London's past. I've been Nikki Druce, this has been Boots, and I'll see you ghouls next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.